Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I hope you are well, healthy, and safe. I also hope you've been able to check out some of the content coming out on my website, policyviz.com. I've had a bunch of new blog posts go out, some new videos around creating visualizations in Excel, and I've also been hosting the uh, daily series on the Clubhouse app, All Charts Considered. If you're not on the app, please send me a note and we will get you invited so you can join in some of these conversations. On this week's episode of the podcast, I'm very excited to welcome Casey Miller from the Los Angeles Times. Casey is a data journalist who automates and analyzes data around disasters, both natural and man-made, that threaten the daily lives of Californians. Now, in the past, Casey also helped create visual and data-driven graphics at Mapbox and at Vox Media. And I didn't actually know about her background at Mapbox. So we talk about how that work has actually informed how she approached creating maps at the Los Angeles Times. We also talk about the graphics desk more generally at the LA Times, and we talk about how the graphics desk and the reporters at the LA Times work together to create different visualizations and their evolution to now using Data Wrapper in the newsroom. So I think you're really gonna enjoy this week's episode of the show. I think uh, you're gonna learn a lot about how they work at the LA Times. And I really hope that you'll check out some of their work as someone who lives on the East Coast of the United States. I feel like the LA Times work doesn't quite get their due. So I hope you will be able to check out their work, especially Casey's work around these disasters, uh, as mentioned, both natural and uh, man-made over in California. So I hope you'll enjoy this week's episode of the podcast. And here's my discussion with Casey Miller. Hi, Casey. Welcome to the show. Good to see you. Hey, John. Good to see you, too. Uh, I am very excited to have you on the show. Always good to have folks from the LA Times uh, chatting with me because I feel like as an East Coast person, the LA Times doesn't get quite the, I don't know, doesn't quite quite get the due that it deserves. So I'm excited to have you on the show and, and talk about the work you've been doing over there. So do you want to talk about your background and how you got into being a data journalist and the work you do at the Times? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'll go back kind of far for this, but um, <laughs> I, uh, it's, this happened when I, I was in college, as I guess for a lot of people, but um, uh, I had attended a separate university my freshman year and I transferred to uh, University of North Carolina for my sophomore year. And when I got there, I thought that I really wanted to take a graphic design class because it was kind of different than the things that I've been doing. And I wanted to change pace and I, you know, it seemed interesting to me. And in order to take the graphic design class, I had to pre-declare as a journalism major. It's just where they were held in the school. That was the only kind of place to do it. And I was like, okay, this seems interesting enough. Let's try it out. And then from taking that class, um, I, I, know, I kind of found this data interactives kind of program where we learned a little bit of uh, JavaScript, enough to make some basic interactive charts. And then we also had you know, an introduction to some backend programming. It was in Django at that time. I think it might be something else now. But um, <laughs> And so, you know, I kind of uh, fell in love with making projects that involve these tools and, you know, geared towards storytelling. And I just really fell in love with it. And, um, you know, from then on, right out of school, I actually interned. It was then the data desk is now the data and graphics desk at the LA Times. Um, so come full circle there. Uh, and I worked at Vox for a couple of years uh, doing a variety of things, including newsroom tools and also storytelling projects. And then uh, worked at Mapbox for a brief stint, got really well versed in those tools that I still use today. And I've right. been at, at the LA Times for a little over two years, uh, mostly working on 
natural disasters kinds of related things. So I maintain our live wildfires map. Uh, and, you know, that incorporates a bunch of live fire feeds uh, for hotspots and perimeters, things like that, as well as evacuation zones. And then I also kind of rehabbed our QuakeBot, originally built by Ken Schwenke, uh, and added some shake maps to that, which was a fun ad that I think everyone has enjoyed. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of fun to see. We had an earthquake here earlier this week, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And it was kind of you know fun to look at the map after and see, yeah, you know, all these people felt the shaking. So right. that's always neat. So that's interesting. So you interned at the LA Times. So you were living in LA, interning there, and then went to Vox and, and did these other things <laughs> and then have come back. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I went to school in North Carolina. I was out in LA for the summer interning. Then I was back on the East Coast, uh, ping-ponged a little bit between New York and DC. Right. Then made it back. Then I, when I joined Mapbox, I was in the Bay and then came back down here for LA Times. So wow. jumped around wow. quite a bit. Yeah. So I asked you um, a while ago to do uh, a video for the One Chart at a Time series on Coropleth maps. I guess we could talk about maps a little bit, but I, I don't think I knew your background with Mapbox. And so I'm curious about taking the skills and the background of working at Mapbox and now working in a newsroom where you're creating maps for a general, you know, a general readership. So I don't really know what my exact question is. I, I guess it's, it's really, how do you think about blending those two or taking the work that you did at Mapbox and now focusing on that communication side of things? Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny. I actually joke sometimes that I use Mapbox more at the LA times than I did when I worked at Mapbox. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I joined a team there. I worked with, uh, it was a very, originally it was a very small team. It was um, a narrative based team. It was going to be storytelling based. And I worked very closely with uh, Lo Benishu, if you know them. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that was really cool until uh, it got dissolved and we became part of the marketing team. Uh, and mm. then it was more so building like demonstrations for people. I did get used to the tools and it just like the outcome of, you know, what I was trying to do with them wasn't quite aligned with what I wanted. Um, right. Like it just wasn't the type of storytelling that I really find engaging. It was more, you know, let me prove how these tools are great, which enabled me to, but now to take those kinds of tools and skills that I learned and use it in my work, which has been really nice. Like, I mean, right. it was we at the LA Times, when I joined, um, they had previously been using Cardo, uh, which had been retired, and then had a smattering of other kind of maps and maps frameworks that, you know, folks had used for different projects, but there wasn't a go to solution. Um, so, you know, print maps were done one way, and they still are done a different way. But um, locator maps were one thing, you know, it kind of depended on who was building the map, what they were comfortable with. But it was also challenging because we didn't really have like a single source. And we also basically didn't pay for any, like a lot for any of these sources. We had the great ad hoc yeah. plans for the different things. And so, you know, we've kind of made a transition to Mapbox for our team on the editorial side and on the business side, um, like I think the business side, but the people who like maintain the CMS at the paper, uh, we use Mapbox in there now as well. So we have like a much larger plan and we you know we're all kind of um, centered on that and streamlined through there. So it was a no-brainer for me uh, when I was building the fire map that it was going to be Mapbox. There's, it's a great tool for you know easily being able to implement scalability and a number of layers, and you know it's going to work all the time, and they have really good support too. 
Right. So why don't we talk about the the wildfire map for two reasons? So the one reason is, you know, anything you want to talk about with the the technical parts of the map or just the process of building the map and clearly updating the map. And also a sort of secondary question, which may be even more important, but maybe a little less interest to folks who really want to know how you do your day to day, which is how do you think about a project like that that is really meaningful, like people can make life and death decisions based on what they see in that map. That's very different than like making a line chart of, you know, GDP growth or something like that. I mean, you're making a map where people can really see their homes and how close a fire is to their to their neighborhood. So um, so there's really two questions there. And I'll let you just tackle either one if you want. Yeah. So we, I mean, mostly myself and Ben Welsh, um, and then a couple of other folks at the paper talked a lot about the various data sources that we found for, you know, the different layers that we have on the map. And the different layers predominantly are uh, hotspots, whether it be individual hotspots or aggregated hotspots, um, fire perimeters. We do have an air quality layer, which is kind of interesting to see. And Mm -hmm. then we also have fire origin points, which is, you know, one of the most important layers. And then also the evacuation zones layer, which is the most difficult to maintain, but I think also the most important. And yeah. that was um, a newer ad. I had started to add it at the end of 2019, but I really, it, it got a lot farther, more developed this past year. So, you know, I think part of it is challenging. It's reading out in, then also deciding which sources we wanted to use. So for hotspots, for example, there are, you know, five or six different sources. And the two that we picked one is the fastest one and one is the most human verified one. And it's a combination of those things. So mm. we're trying to, you know, to surface data as quickly as we can, but also try and verify it as much as we can. So for the, just for some background, uh, there are a couple of different NASA satellites that gather hotspot information. And there is a NOAA feed that pulls both of those hotspot feeds from NASA and then some a person actually goes and looks at them and like verifies oh. whether you know it actually seems like it's somewhere that's on fire or if it's going to be like you know that's probably a group of solar panels or something because um, there are other things that can reflect and kind of look like it's hot but it's not actually hot um, oh interesting okay or not on fire anyway yeah and so um, the other source that we have the fast one is uh, a source that we have from Descartes Labs and we work with them to kind of get a satellite source from them which is updates much more quickly it's a couple times an hour versus twice a day so I think you know kind of vetting the data is a huge part of it was a huge part of it I mean still continues to be I have to update you know we had to, I had to update one of my feeds last year because it just they changed it um, mm-hmm. I would say, honestly, an interesting feed, but the least useful is like the fire perimeters, um, just because they're often outdated and they're not updated as frequently. It's showing you the extent of where the fire is burned, which is an interesting yeah. thing to see, but it's not really relevant in real time because um, the, the hotspots are much, the hotspots and evacuation zones are much more um, helpful when it comes to like, you know, seeing what you need to know or what your family needs to know or whatnot, like in real time. Yeah, um, right. I, I will talk a little bit about like the evacuation zones. It was a fun challenge, but also challenging. So unlike all of our other sources, there is not one main place to go for evacuation zones. Uh, They're all put out by, well, that's not one source anyway, but like it's much more disseminated. Uh, it's usually, you know, the local fire department or the county office or the sheriff's office sometimes. And you have to kind of, 
do some strategic looking around. So like sometimes NCWeb, which is uh, like a fire agency, will have sometimes links, sometimes we'll write up, you know, where the evacuation zone is. Uh, other times you'll have to Google for it and see, you know, if there are a local county agency, you know, has somebody tweeted about this is linked to like the Facebook page for that county that has a like a PNG of this map. And then mm. you have to figure out how you're going to extract it. And, you know, that's sometimes easy if, you know, they're using like an ArcGIS map and you can go in and you can find the layer and you can go to the server and you can query the server and pull down that GeoJSON, which is ideal. Uh, other times it's just a written two sentence paragraph of, you know, uh, started by the north side of this lake and extends uh. down to the old schoolhouse and this like on the crossroads of Maine and first. And that would actually be an easier one. I've had some that are just really uh. challenging to figure out. And it's honestly my best guess. And I yeah. kind of erred on the side of, well, I'd rather have it on there and it be a little bit off than not put it on there at all. Right, um, right, right. And so I've kind of worked to streamline that process a little bit, uh, wrote up some documentation for it over the last uh, last summer, just because it was challenging uh, also in that like I was the one grabbing all these things. And I, it was, you know, I wanted to kind of help other folks learn how to do it as well. But we were in the throes of a like huge fire season and me yeah. trying to kind of show folks in a way that made sense but then also make sure all of these places were updated. It was kind of too much to do at that point in time. So now we have some documentation. And I think that this year, other folks will be able to jump in and also find and add those zones to probably with, um, you know, I'm sure we'll have a Slack channel around it and we'll talk it through when there are, you know, questions and things like that. But we're right. set up now in a better way to have folks contribute to it. Yeah, that was really interesting. So just to continue this thread, as you look forward and not in a good way <laughs> to the next fire season. Sure, um, yeah. Now you have this sort of infrastructure set up. And, and this is sort of a broader question, but how does the graphics team then interact with the journalist team, either for this project or for, or for any project, just seeking a little bit more of information about how do the teams work together in the newsroom sure. specifically? Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about this project, and then I'll kind of talk about it a little bit more broadly too. Um, so for, for the maps itself, Unlike a lot of the things we do, it's one of the few applications we maintain. So most of the graphics or, you know, graphically driven things that we do are standalone pieces. And I mean, this is a standalone piece, but, you know, it's continually updated. So for this one, um, you know, we worked with a lot of the like reporters who cover fires and natural disasters to figure out what we wanted to surface and how they wanted to use it. And also there is a view of this map that is embeddable within stories um, in the CMS. So that's something that gets used very frequently especially for, you know, new fires that have evac zones and things like that. Um, on the other side of things, you know, there's a mix between folks coming to us with ideas for stories that they kind of want to investigate um, or, you know, are starting to report on and they really want to like pull us in from the beginning. And it's not so much of a service desky kind of thing. It's more about we're going to collaborate on this kind of idea. And then there's the other side of it too, which is we also pitch our own ideas. So there are stories that are homegrown on our desk and, you know, folks do all the reporting and data reporting and all the graphics. And, you know, it's, I don't want to say isolated, but fully produced by our desk. Now, mm -hmm. um, as far as like traditional newsroom charts, basically, but like, you know, things that uh, 
bar charts, line charts, sometimes simple locator maps that are more of a request kind of thing. We're actually, you know, we've instituted my manager and like the team that has instituted, you know, a service where we use data wrapper to create these basic tools. We have a clam data wrapper. We work with them very closely to um, get custom styles for our charts, both print and web. And we are starting to um, kind of create like a production line that one of us mans every day. So it's, you know, once every two weeks or so, you end up being like on call for helping reporters mm-hmm. make these charts. You know, it's a lot less of a load than having someone come to you and ask, you know, can you make me this custom chart? Um, so right. I think, you know, we still want to help out and it's it's still in the purview of graphics, but, um, you know, we want to really focus. I think we're, this allows us to focus more on the creative data storytelling that, you know, we really shine doing. When a reporter asks you, are they asking you to make the chart in Data Wrapper or they're trained up in such a way where they're asking you to sort of like more of a quality control check? Uh, right now, it's kind of a mix. Um, so okay. this is, I think, you know, ideally we want to get to a place where all of the reporters can make the charts and it's more of a quality check kind of thing. But yeah. since it's a, it is a new, uh, something new that we've instituted, you know, there there is a mix right now. So there are some folks who have been making charts in Data Wrapper for over a year. And there are some folks who have never made one and do need right. help making one. Right. So does that mean then that the other tools that you use and know how to use like Mapbox and JavaScript and D3 and these other tools, does that mean those tools are used for the larger projects, the more in-depth projects? I don't want to say in-depth in yeah. a bad way. I don't yeah, mean no, a bad no, way, but more like, yeah. technically in-depth, yeah, I guess. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say that's right. I mean, I think, you know, we have, we have I, one of the unique things I think about this team is that it's the data and graphics team, which is the result of the formerly known data desk and the formerly known graphics team at the LA Times. And as such, there's a variety of people on the team who have different skill sets. So like, mm. you know, we have folks who are amazing at Illustrator and can do 3D graphics. And that is none of the skills that I have. And, <laughs> um, you know, it's really great to be able to work with folks and kind of pair on projects or, you know, um, smaller graphics or larger graphics to kind of figure out who has what skills to get the thing done most efficiently, or, you know, Mm -hmm. also learn new skills from, um, you know, I do use a lot of, a lot of JavaScript, a lot of D3. Um, we have a lot of folks who, I mean, myself included, but do like data processing in Python or R, um, you know, it kind of, it kind of varies. We do have a, like a build system for our projects. So um, like static site generators that we use for, you know, most of the projects we produce that are standalone, which is um, maintained by a few folks on the team. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with like using D3 for like a smaller chart or something. It's just, mm-hmm. we've tried to kind of get away from that because the overhead uh, is so much bigger for, you know, spinning up a chart in D3 versus quickly going into data wrapper or making a bar chart for someone. Yeah, sure, sure, yeah. In your experience, since you've been, you've been doing this a while, um, and I was literally, uh, before we started talking, I was on another call uh, about interactive graphics. And since you've moved from, I guess, in sort of like the, the general graph from D3, from a more bespoke custom graph to data wrapper, what is your take on, on interactivity when it comes to creating graphs? I mean, you know, when D3 sort of first became really popular, everything was interactive. And I feel like we've pulled away from that a little bit. And now mm-hmm. with tools like Flourish and Data Wrapper, we're sort of getting a little bit back to that. Um, but only because, you know, it's a little bit easier now to build those. So, like, what's your take on the balance between interactive graphics versus static graphics? Yeah, uh, 
I think, you know, honestly, for most graphics, I think they don't need to be interactive um, to, yeah. you know, a large degree. I do think that, you know, if you really need to be able to surface granular information, having, there's a difference also between like having tooltips for something and then, or like, and like animating bars. Like, yeah. I think, you know, it's really a scale of, you know, how much do you need to show? And I think that having the ability to drill down and show more information is definitely useful, but I don't know if I think that like, you know, I'm, I'm going to use, I'll use the animating bars again, but like, you know, the scaling out the bars, unless you're trying to show change, um, mm -hmm. is useful. So I think, you know, like a lot of times you just need that bar chart or that line chart. If you're really trying to use the same chart to kind of show differences over time or show, you know, how, you know, the difference between these two things or that's what animation really comes into play. And I think that for us, and like, I think that you see that in a lot of the more custom graphics that we do, but you know, we don't need it for, um, a lot of the, these simpler just as good, but simpler charts that we yeah. do. It's just, um, the animation wouldn't add anything to it. And often, you know, it would even make it a little bit obscured in what we're trying to show. Right. And then how do you think about that interaction of the interactivity or the animation with, um, what I presume is a large share of your readers who are going through your content on mobile devices. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of funny because I've kind of always thought about mobile first and I don't say that as like, uh, you know, I'm better or anything. It's just when I, when I graduated from school, that was the thing. Mobile first yeah. was like the thing that was drilled into use. And I, right. I use my phone all the time and I know that yeah. I'm, you know, I'm one of those people who will more likely see the graphic um, from any news site or, you know, what have you on my phone than on my computer, unless I'm seeing it while I'm working. And I think that, you know, I put, we all put a lot of time into it. Um, I prefer to start there and kind of think about what the interactions. Like it is definitely challenging um, mm -hmm. with some technologies. Like, you know, uh, I was working on a project with some folks recently where we were trying to, instead of having like an auto playing video, we were trying to allow you to physically scroll through the video. So you would scroll down the page and it would advance the frames of the video. Mm -hmm. And it worked fine on desktop. It did not work well on mobile. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the scroll itself, scrolling through the video worked okay, but we are trying to have like these interstitial points where cards would come up and you'd see more detailed information, the interactivity you're speaking of. And yep. uh, the, the way that mobile registers the scroll is totally different than the way the desktop registers the scroll. And, you know, you don't get every frame you get when you started and like when you ended and you just skips these spans of time. That's how we were keying these things um, to like these locations. And it just like totally flopped. Um, and it, you know, we were on deadline for this thing. And so we kind of retooled how we wanted it to work and tabled that. We're like, okay, we learned a lot from that. We'll come back to it. I think it's a cool idea not for this project. Oh, interesting. So in that case, it really was, and primarily because of the, it sounds like because of the deadline, it's like, we're not going to put this out because yeah. it's not going to work on mobile. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. We, um, we switched to, this is a project we did recently, um, on Pico Boulevard. So it's, you know, mm -hmm. uh, we featured a number of different places, businesses. So rest some restaurants, some more traditional businesses along Pico Boulevard in Los Angeles and showing how they've changed over the year of the pandemic. Uh, and wrote, you know, some of the reporters wrote little anecdotes to go with that and pulled quotes from the business owners. And we had one of the um, videographers actually like drive down all of Pico. So like from mm -hmm. the coast down to downtown. And we used, we did use that video, but we ended up like, you know, cutting like pieces of it to show where, 
the locations were. And instead of scrolling through it, we had um, kind of like, it was about the slide, like scroll up kind right. of slide thing. Like the videos would autoplay and you, the information would come up and you'd read it. And the next video would autoplay rather than, right. you know, you scrolling through the whole video yourself. Um, but it was like really cool to explore. And I think that, you know, having the time to kind of look into that and realize that there is something there, even if we couldn't turn it around for this project, I think we'll definitely want to use it for something in the future. Right. And so now you've got this experience and presumably it's not just your part of the graphics desk, but it's also the journalists. It's also the, I assume there's, I don't know anything about this, but yeah, I assume yeah. there's like kind of a, like, like a backend person or people who, you know, have more experience of how to piece all this together for the next time. Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, so yeah, we worked with a number of reporters on this story and um, we were on the business desk and then it was a group of, um, three of us from the data and graphics team. But I will say like, I kind of like how I hinted about earlier with us having different skill sets. There are a couple of us yeah. who also do backend work on this team. So um, gotcha. it would okay. probably be, you know, either one of the two of us who was kind of doing that work would probably be on the next story where we might use this kind of tool. Um, but we also, I mean, I think, you know, another different view, if we weren't working on it, we would probably talk to a partner with the person who was working on it for a little bit, just kind of to share the knowledge that we'd gained. Right. So one more question on this, this balance of these different platforms, because you and I were on a chat on the Clubhouse app a couple of days ago, and the topic of print came up. And so now you've got like, you've got mobile, you've got desktop, and you've got print. And, you know, a decade ago or so, my understanding was that newsrooms were doing, you know, sort of three separate things for each of those different platforms. So there's still a big uh, a print circulation of the LA Times. Let's just take the story that you just did. So how do you think about the balance between that versus, you know, the desktop mobile experience versus the print experience? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So, you know, I think like many other newsrooms, the mobile and desktop experiences, as far as technology is used, uh, very similar. It's, you know, maybe right, scaled right. differently or things like that. Um, but for print, it, it can be different. So like I, I mentioned, we have data wrapper for a lot of the print charts we do, and that works for maps as well for simple maps. Um, so, you know, locator maps or things where we're trying to show points on a map, it's more challenging with things like Coraplex or any kind of like overlays you have. Um, so, you know, if it's a simple map, we can often do it. Well, can, data wrapper can export for uh, the web and for print, and it's a different style, but it works for both. And for more complex things, you know, it is a different project. Um, yeah. So like I, I worked on um, a couple weeks ago, I worked with one of our reporters, Doug Smith, on pooling the uh, new tsunami evacuation zones for the LA County area. And so the, this data was updated for the first time in 10 years. And they based it on like a, you know, a different large event than the previous ones are based on. It used to be based on, you know, a once in 500 years event. And it's now based on a one in 1000 year event. So it's a little bit bigger and the evacuation zones are a little bit larger. And, you know, I made this web version using Mapbox and now we need to do a print version and you cannot export print from Mapbox. Doesn't, doesn't mm, work right. that way. So, right. um, you know, I will work with one of the folks who is a little bit more well-versed in, I can get around an illustrator, but I am by no means an expert. Um, yeah. So somebody who's a little bit better at illustrator than I am, who has more experience working with print um, to do these kinds of things. And so, 
we'll kind of collaborate on that, which is, you know, I would say this is not super common. A lot of the graphics we do for the paper, uh, we can do with data wrapper, but every, every once in a while, um, you know, there is something that needs to be a little more custom. That is a whole different process. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Well, I think you've got your work cut out for you and, um, it sounds great. I mean, the wildfire map, although it's not uh, something I really have to worry about here, uh, in Virginia, I, I do find it really interesting, fascinating project. Um, so thanks for working on that. I'll just put it that way. And it sounds like there's so much data getting pulled together. That is really incredible. So Casey, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been, it's been great chatting with you and learning about the, the work over there at the, at the times. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time speaking. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the show. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you learned a little bit about how the LA Times graphics desk works. And I hope you will check out Casey's work and the rest of the team over at the LA Times. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. A number of people help bring you the Policy Viz Podcast. Music is provided by the NRIs. Audio editing is provided by Ken Skaggs, and each episode is transcribed by Jenny Transcription Services. If you would like to help support the podcast, please share it and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Policy Viz podcast is ad-free and supported by listeners. If you'd like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash policyviz.